My uh, pattern with the students, and I think it would be nice to do the same with you, uh, is to start with a brief uh, uh, thought about the scriptures uh, and then prayer before we start properly. With the students, uh, I make it a habit of going through the Sermon on the Mount during the year, uh, each year. The grounds being that one of the things we wish to achieve in uh, Augustine is a development of Christian character. And as far as I'm concerned, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. So the difference between mere believers and disciples, and disciples are people of character. And that, of course, is rooted in the Beatitudes, which you all know by heart. You do at least. Um, in fact, Lolly was one of the first people to make me aware of the fact that it was important to do this, because uh, it's, some, it's been central to my life. Uh, uh, the Bonhoeffer says somewhere, I think it's in Life Together, or Living Together, I always get the title wrong, that everyone should ask the Lord for a passage of scripture for them at some stage during your life. Many times, really. You should all be reading the scriptures every day like you clean your teeth, that's good for you. And your dentist knows whether you've done so later on, and the good Lord knows whether you read the scriptures and prayed this morning. You may have forgotten by 11 o'clock, especially when you reach my age of uh, recent memory loss. Uh, but Bonhoeffer says you also need to say to God, please give me something from you. And the way that happens when you pray that prayer for a few weeks is that God will bring to your mind or to your attention some passage of scripture in a way that you can't deny its importance. And when that happens, what you do is you read it every day until it really soaks into you. And what happens in that process is it comes to life. It's rather like water in the desert. Uh, and slowly, you'll begin to realize what the good Lord is at work at. Uh, for me, it was the Sermon on the Mount, and it was students that brought my attention to it, because uh, I accused them of being ignorant of the Bible, and sure enough, they were, and I used the Sermon on the Mount as the test, and none of them could tell me the Beatitudes. Uh, and as I walked away, I realized that I could not give a coherent account of that sermon without notes. Yet all of you in your professional area could give a coherent account of 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 diseases without reference to a textbook, right? Or a reasonably coherent account. Uh, uh, perhaps you'd have to go to Hippocrates to look up the therapy, but that's, uh, that's always changing. But, but you know what I'm saying, is that the mark of somebody who really knows something is that they can talk about it without notes. Uh, they may use them in order to structure them, but you don't actually need them. So here was a, a temporal area of my life which I took more seriously than the so-called eternal area. I mean, it was incoherent. Uh, so I learned the Sermon on the Mount by heart and it transformed my thinking. The first thing I realized, of course, was that we don't have the Sermon on the Mount in the Bible. We have the lecture notes for the Sermon on the Mount and you have to fill in the blanks. And it's filling in the blanks that's so exciting as I don't think there's a half verse that doesn't need a blank filling in. Nobody would, li would agree to listen to Jesus for 20 minutes. My guess is that everything he spoke was probably expanded for about three hours. Um, uh, one day we'll find out, but something of that order. And of course he said similar things in each village. That's why the disciples could remember them, and that's also why there are minor differences, uh, because there were minor variations, depending on the needs of the village. So, in learning the Sermon on the Mount, uh, 
all sorts of things came to life and I must not go in that direction because the next three hours would disappear without any trouble at all. Uh, the end of Matthew 4, Jesus was healing all the sick. In, and the next morning, Matthew uh, turns up to see what has been going on. Uh, I think he ripped Jesus off at some point, and he really wanted to know what this man was really like, because the interview had been different. But when he got to the village, there was no one there. And it says, very simply, Jesus, going into the clinic and seeing the patient, said, not today, I'm off up the mountain. And not quite in those words, of course, but that's the thought. And all physicians need to recognise that healing is not a continuous activity. In fact, in the, the long scheme of things, we lose all wars, we win some battles. Uh, we're all going to die. And, of course, if we'd had the healing capacity that Jesus has had, my guess is that we would spend most of our life healing, right? You know, we, we, we'd actually enjoy it constantly, making people better. Jesus didn't do that. There are recorded healings, uh, probably more than most healers did, but not the number that you would have expected with those kinds of powers. <coughs> and certainly as I came to understand the Sermon on the Mount seriously, I began to realise that we need to take our Lord's advice seriously in this area and to get our priorities right and to start thinking about how we structure our lives in terms of time expended on different things. And it's very easy for it to get out of line. And the Beatitudes, of course, are the key stages through which each thought has to be processed. Intellectual honesty, leading to repentance, leading to... Uh, submission to the leadership of Christ, leading to hungering and thirsting for more, leading to mercy, to purity of heart, to mercifulness, peacemaking, and inevitably the consequences of that in a fallen world, some persecution. That's the, the Christian character formation process. Uh, that changed my whole thinking about how I do my science, how I did everything, that I was not to allow things to dominate to the extent that they could. And it's part of trust, isn't it? And of course science, especially leading-edge science, has got a huge element that is currently suppressed in the medical school, an element of surprise. Uh, it's not inappropriate to pray that God will guide your reading, uh, your thinking, the experiments you plan. Uh, that's time well spent, because... As Einstein put it, uh, I felt my equations. Then there was a great deal of work to do to find out whether my feelings were correct. That's where the genius of Einstein lay, but the, he, was, oh, he was clearly understood that the, the idea came from somewhere else. Uh, similarly with Newton, uh, Hooke had the same basic intuition that only Newton could do the mathematics. Uh, and of course... Uh, the whole growth of science uh, shows this phenomenon. So let's start with prayer. Father, at the beginning of this week of thought, we pray that your spirit may be at work in our hearts and minds. That the inadequacies of those who teach will not in any way prevent the teacher, your spirit, from working deeply in our hearts and minds. 
Metis O Lord a conference that seeks primarily to bring our learning and our knowledge under your Lordship that we may understand what a university should be Lord what I say that is not from you I pray that it may be swiftly forgotten and that you will use our offerings in your service for Christ's sake Amen see down the road we have a multiversity the multiversity of Ottawa uh, what we're trying to do here is a university that's why the courses are all integrated the uni in university meant that there was one idea of what truth and learning should be and it was all to come together under God's authority that's no longer the case so the faculties in the institution along the road can't even talk to one another using the same words they use the same words but they don't have the same meaning uh, you have people who don't believe in any real truth and then you have scientists who are kind of naive realists they think they're discovering, discovering something real about the world although at a deep level the idea of an atom is not what an atom is I mean an atom is our construction of the data that we have and it's good enough to allow us to make drugs uh, but it's certainly very different from what Dalton thought and probably nobody really knows what it is even yet uh, that's where we're at now I want to start by reading um, from Margaret Mead uh, because we're dealing with the ancient roots of medicine this week and Margaret Mead provides a suitable starting point for several reasons but let me read first and explain why I choose her first for the first time in our tradition there was a complete separation between killing and curing throughout the primitive world the doctor and the sorcerer tended to be the same person he with power to kill had power to cure, including especially the undoing of his own killing activities. With the Greeks, the distinction was made clear. One profession, the followers of Asclepius, were to be dedicated completely to life under all circumstances, regardless of rank, age or intellect. The life of the slave, the life of the emperor, the life of the foreign man, the life of a defective child, all equal. This is a priceless possession which we cannot afford to tarnish but society always is attempting to make uh, the physician into a killer to kill the defective child at birth to leave the sleeping pills beside the bed of the cancer patient it is the duty of society to pr protect the physician from all such requests now I choose Margaret Mead because one of the things I want you to go away from this week with is the recognition that in the current state of our culture it's always good to start your discussion if you can find it with an atheist it takes away all reflex anti-christian comments it, they are sort of hamstrung from the beginning and she's made the points that we will come back to this evening basically we'll get back to the ethics of the early part when medicine was being formed but uh, she also has that capacity to gloss over the realities and go for the the rhetorical points I mean there's no discussion of uh, the uncertainties about Hippocrates or anything like that but what she did clearly grasp which was clearly true is that something happened to the understanding of the world uh, that had its roots somewhere in the uh, 4th, 5th and 6th centuries B, uh, BC and really began to flourish uh, when the Christian era commenced uh, and it changed medicine we are not a post-enlightenment profession 
uh, much as many of our leaders would like us to be so, we have much, a much longer history than that. And if we don't assert that history, we, we stand to lose in the, in the long run uh, because of what is happening to us. And it's the next, that's the next thing I want to, to get to. And uh, I'm going to annoy Terry in a few moments' time by having to clip his recording uh, when I give you a chance to talk to one another. But uh, for those who are listening in the future, I'm sorry, but you'll just have to come to Augustine College to get the full flavour. Uh, the guys who, and women who are assembled here today are what will make this week interesting. But a word that we use all the while today, uh, technology, is not in fact the word that the Greeks used. Uh, this is a neologism of really America. Uh, the words that the Greek, the words that the Greek used was techne. Now, since we're looking at the ancient roots of things, all societies have techniques. Even chimpanzee societies have techniques. They use tools. Uh, but technology is something quite different. Uh, and I want us to take a little time to think about that this morning as a preamble to other things so that we can begin to realize how thoughts in one time were used in one way and then over time they, they subtly change and they reappear really quite transformed with a power that, that we hadn't thought about. And this has a, potentially a huge effect on medicine. What does technique and technology, well, what's the difference that, that's involved there? Well, I think it's the difference between uh, the craftsman and the modern world. Craftsmen of the ancient world were concerned with how they did things. Um, and they honed their techniques. They were proud of them in various ways. Uh, technology does not do that in the same way. Uh, those of you who have had to deal with the technology of Mr. Gates knows that, know that. He did not set out to hone his techniques to produce the best product he could, did he? He produced the best product for his purposes, which was to gain control of a whole area of human life and make himself an extremely wealthy man. And he did it by means of technology, where the understanding of how techniques could be used for other purposes was divorced from the technique itself. That thought does not occur in the era, in the era that we are talking about, where our profession began. But we are being moved towards technology and away from technique now. You probably, well, there's no question, you are not allowed to practice the best medicine you would like all the while, are you? It's one of the major things that has happened in my lifetime in medicine. This was not a thought that occurred when I began in medicine. Uh, you saw patients, uh, I have to say this even to Americans, that the best time of my medical practice was in the early British national health system. And I suspect if you talk to people from the prairies, they would say that when Medicare came in in Saskatchewan, it really worked very well. But of course, there was an underpinning of character which meant that people didn't abuse it. That's gone now. Can you imagine it? People actually apologize for getting me out of bed at night in the early uh, days of the NHS because they lived with the uncertainties of 
life without adequate insurance and then suddenly that was gone and they were overwhelmed with relief for ordinary working class people and they did not abuse the system. That's gone now. The same was true in the prairies. The prairies had a deep-rooted Mennonites type ethos where the abuse of the system was wrong. That's all gone now. People demanding that they be treated for the most trivial things at inappropriate times for their convenience and no one else's. That's a different world. But the world that we're looking at is one where techniques developed. And in every culture this is essential. The, the beginnings of specialization that make development possible. But it's a long, slow process. Of course, I've been interested in this because of my practical interests in malnourished children. We understand the science of malnutrition. We've been utterly incapable of translating that science into application in animistic cultures. And uh, I've spent years thinking about why that is so. I can go there and do it. I can train my children to do it. But cannot make it an indigenous phenomenon. Whereas in Europe, after the Second World War, there was a huge amount of malnutrition following the starvation that the Nazis induced, especially in Holland. The first thing the Allies did was set up a committee to decide how to deal with it. Before the committee reported, there was no malnutrition in Europe. The economy hadn't improved. All that happened is the war had stopped and there had been a trickle of food. But in a deeply enculturated Christian culture, that food went to the children. In an animistic society, it doesn't. Cultures are different. Uh, and for medicine, that's important to, to recognize. There is no such thing, and neither will you ever see a multicultural patient you think about it, the beast doesn't exist. It's a phrase worth remembering. I have never seen a multicultural patient can stop some of our liberal opponents in their tracks. Uh, have you? Is the question. Or if you want to put it in the form of a question, have you ever seen a multicultural patient? The answer is no. Every patient you see inhabits a particular culture. And the culture they inhabit will determine how they understand suffering and death and justice. All these big issues that are going to come up during the week, uh, they're not the same. When you've heard a man in Africa say to the surgeon, but I could buy a new wife for the cost of that operation, you realize cultures are different. You know, that is a different concept. I, I think every feminist in Canada should be required to live in an African village for six months. Uh, I think that would make them understand that the, the demand for rights for women, perfectly legitimate and just, only flourished where Christianity had flourished, and it's not an accident. Now, you'd have to come for ten years to get the whole sequence. But way back in a village, somebody turned out to be able to do some things better than others before writing occurred. And so they found, obviously, that they could barter their skills for food. And if they preferred making things to growing things, so things developed. And by and large, for many, many, many centuries, people tried to do the job as well as they could. Only in the 19th and 20th centuries now becoming very sophisticated has the idea of not doing the job as well as you could become acceptable as part of technology. 
I was told the other day that Ford actually employs one group of engineers to work very carefully on what could be built into a Ford to make it utterly reliable for five years and not so reliable thereafter. Uh, why? Well, they've thought about the economics, especially if they can do it in a way that makes it slightly cheaper uh, in the first place. Uh, this has been going on for some time. You know, my grandfather was a Rolls-Royce toolmaker proud of the fact that he could work to a ten-thousandth of an inch in his construction of tools. Uh, Toolmakers are irrelevant now because computer-assisted designs is, what, ten-thousandths of an inch? Do it to a millionth. That's why our cars run longer, because the tolerances can be controlled. But it's being used for purposes other than primarily the making of a thing. It's now primarily used to make money for some people. Uh, and in that process, we have got to the slippery slope where we're beginning to ask ourselves, how should we do this? And of course, the people who run the system, who control you, are post-enlightenment in their thought. They think much more about technology than they do about technique, the old word and the consequences are going to be real. And if you only transfer information that you acquired when you were in medical school to patients, who's going to know more about any obscure disease the day after the diagnosis, you or the patient if you're in, well, almost any subject? Perhaps not so obscure diagnoses. You can't keep up with everything, can you, by any means? So what will be the solution? Uh, the solution's inevitable. You can already see it beginning. Uh, when I started in medicine, physicians did electrocardiograms. And I was taught by people, uh, one of the guys who put in the first intravenous in London. Well, he wasn't the first. Christopher Wren actually infused uh, oil into his dog through a goose quill. But uh, that's the first uh, intravenous feeding that I'm aware of. But... Uh, uh, that was done by physicians. But the moment a technique can be done by somebody with less training and therefore less pay, in a technological system, I don't think you can resist that, can you? Uh, and with access to information becoming what it is, none of us will have more information than our patients. So unless we have something more than that, we're in trouble. Eliot understood this problem a long, long while ago. In the, I think it's in Choruses on the Rock. He says, where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? Now, our dean prides himself on creating an information-rich society. Sadly, it's also a wisdom-poor society. Uh, and unless we can get wisdom, knowledge, and information in their right places, and we major in wisdom, and real knowledge, we'll be out of business. Is there any, can, even the surgeons here, can you defend yourself against somebody saying hernias should be fixed by a woman with better fine motor coordination than you? I don't think you can, can you, really? You could train someone to do that operation. It's a safe operation. You'd need to be done 
Lots of them are being done, so in any large cities, I think there is a hernia hospital in Toronto, isn't there? Uh, probably still at the current stage of affairs, all the operations done by MDs, but there's absolutely no reason why they should. And I don't think that that can be resisted indefinitely. I mean, in Africa, you already have caesarean sections done by nurses, and they do them just as well, or in many cases, better. Their own university along the way, in the animal house, is the best surgeon in the place. There's a woman with no medical training who can do operations on rats that some of the guys can't do on people. A superb pair of hands, and she can use equipment too. This is a process that's bound to go ahead. So you, I'm sure we're going to see sliced off different bits of medicine into technique. Uh, I call it muffler shop medicine. Uh, and frankly, if I want my muffler changed, I'm going to go to a muffler shop because they're going to do it in 20 minutes. Yeah. One of my colleagues changed his own last week. His wife laughing said it took him 12 hours. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't have the tools, you know. Uh, same thing's going to happen to us. But way back, it was just <coughs> technique that mattered, and it was located in the con context of a stable society. Now we're moving to this different world. Uh, we have been moving for over 100 years, and it's going to have huge uh, implications. Uh, medicine needs to rediscover its roots, in my view, and that's really for, for, the, for this evening's discussion, because it needs to be more open-ended. But you can be thinking about it during the day. I would put it to you that the four key criteria that underlie the practice of medicine were established way back in the uh, 4th and 5th centuries, and they are these. You can just write them down now as four items. And you can be asking yourself questions. What is the role of transcendence in the practice of medicine? Number one. What is the role of transcendence? And will it become even more important in the future? I would argue that it will, and I think we can easily see why. I mean, Jack Kevorkian had no idea about transcendence. It had something to do with what he did. Number two, what is the nature of the practice of medicine? Is it, as the medical school implies, applied science? I would argue that medicine is fundamentally a moral activity, not a technical one. So number two is, what is the nature of medicine? Is it primarily moral or primarily technical? Number three, uh, and this is, we're mainly Protestant here, I suspect, we're going to have to think this through a great deal more than we have so far. What is the role of the sanctity of life? Certainly those who rule you in your HMOs and in our state-funded government do not wish us to have a high view of the sanctity of life. And they're already winning. By, by default, as the technique becomes technology, we have the techniques of molecular biology producing... Well, what's, what do we get within weeks of getting a new gene? What's the one piece of practical application we can have from a new gene within weeks? Screening tests, that's right. We don't get any treatment by any means. I mean, we've known the molecular biology of sickle cell anemia for 30 years. It hasn't made a scrap of difference to treatment. Now, there has been some marvelous stuff like the, the Philadelphia chromosome. With, there you get the gene and you get the expression of the gene and you get the structure of the receptor site and bang, you've got a designer 
drug that works in a leukemia that was previously rapidly fatal, now 80% of them are cured. Uh, wonderful. Uh, but that's rare. But within weeks, we have the capacity for the manipulators of the system to start changing the system as a whole. So you're in the States, your previous Surgeon General was proud of the fact that the prevalence of Down syndrome in Washington DC when she was in charge of public health there plunged. Now it wasn't even with a with a, a genetic one here, it was screening with a with a high uh, sensitivity for detective downs, but not a, a very high capacity to exclude normals. Uh, she sacrificed a lot of normal children in order to make sure there were fewer Down syndrome. And she was proud of the fact. No discussion of that phenomenon. Uh, that's the people who rule like that. You know, I, th I believe that going through the courts in the States at the moment is a case where an insurance company is trying to argue that their liability for a disabled child ceases at the cost of the abortion because it could have been prevented if, if the woman had accepted antenatal screening. That's horrendous. But that, that's, that's technology when techniques are cobbled together in different ways for a different end. Where we're starting today is way back where the proper thing was done. Where people built and made the best that they could because they took pride in what they did. Uh, and you can see that. That's why art from those periods, I'm sorry that there isn't, for once I'd like an eight-day week because there should be a, a section on art as well. Uh, and it would be a very interesting one, but I guess we'll... We'll get round to those things in due course. Uh, maybe we'll have just one week on that if we could persuade David Jeffrey to come and do it. He's already got it all in place. But uh, we also have uh, David Stewart who's capable of doing that and does do it for us. So that's the thing to remember about the past. All ancient cultures were equally intelligent. I don't know if there's any evidence that intelligence is accumulating. But they were applied in smaller contexts and and doing your job well was important. It's always been important to people. And much of the dissatisfaction now in industries, now beginning to invade medicine, is the recognition that other people decide how well your job is going to be done. And of course, ultimately, you can get to the point where you don't even know what you're doing in the bigger context. You go back to the atom bomb project in the 1940s. Most people did not know what they were actually doing. There were just a few. They were doing this little bit and they, would, they couldn't conceive of putting it all together. Different world. And we need to think about those different worlds because I suspect that when we've closed down all the Catholic and Grace hospitals and the like, and Baptists and Methodists and all the rest, we'll have to reopen them as the real thing. I mean, at the moment, they just have the name attached in most cases. They're, the Catholics have made a better attempt. I mean, I think the Protestants is game over, isn't it? The, the, the Salvation Army hung on for a while. I don't know whether they still do in the States, but they're being forced out here. But when that's done, we have to go back and reintegrate medicine where it belongs within the context of the church, where, where you ask the question, what is the chief end of man? And how is medicine to be under that rubric and to behave in that kind of way?
So what kind of uh, world... Well, let's take a little break because we've gone already over the, the, the teaching limits. And One, two, three, and then we get four. Yeah, oh, sorry, I forgot four. Right. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> thank you so much. It's typical, and it's what Terry was frightened of, that I will wander off and then fortunately somebody will bring me back. <laughs> Usually I remember to come back after the rabbit trail. But uh, yes, four, four is integrity. Uh, what is the role of the individual physician's conscience in the practice of medicine? There's no question that those who rule us want to override that. And we're going to have to defend this vigorously. Write down now www.consciencelaws.org uh, www.consciencelaws.org and go visit. This is uh, Father Sean Murphy's uh, website uh, to try and get together and he's got people from around the world to, to join his board uh, advisory board to, to simply keep up to date on this whole area and so you can see what things are being tried out in various places they always try it like you see regular attempts in the newspapers to pretend that paedophilia is not a bad thing and it's a great outcry and they'll leave it for a bit and then they'll try again knowing if they keep on gradually they'll erode and eventually it'll be, they'll get what they want and he's the, the administrators are the same they talk to one another they seek consensus they say we ought to be able to do this but the physicians won't allow it but we'll try here we'll try there and uh, work our way through it and we need to be alert to these things so that was number four I, I think we, sh we could switch off and uh, take a five or six minute break to talk to your neighbours about the question of whether technique is dominating or technology is dominating in your world and, and how it is, is it changing your life? Uh, I think if you don't come to the conclusion that it is, you need to think about it a bit more. Just to give you a clue about the kind of way that uh, I would suggest you think about it. George Grant, uh, the Canadian philosopher, not the American uh, guy, um, wrote a paper, uh, in fact it's a book called Technology and Justice, many years ago. It's probably on the shelf there, I'm not sure it should be, but uh, uh, the library is less than five years old, so there's all sorts of holes. Um, but in it he discusses this issue, and at one point he, he takes the example of the motor car. As talking about technology because when Ford started moving from people handcrafting and to mass production and this thing it was going to become cheaper and he said but imagine somebody coming into an American town hall meeting or something like that or a community meeting and, and saying to the people there look I, I have this concept for a machine that will allow you to drive from Virginia to Ottawa in two days or less uh, and really it'll make the economy really heat up and we'll all get wealthier. Uh, will you fund me to go ahead with this? And then let's imagine there was one wise person in the audience said, that, what difference will this make to human life? To human communities? And let's say the guy had some real precedence, pres prescience uh, and he said, well I guess there'll be a few thousand people a year who are killed by this machine but overall the benefits will be great now if you hadn't thought about a car 
and an automobile. And somebody suggested a technique that put together in the appropriate way would transform the economy at the cost of a few thousand lives a year. I don't know how many people die of road accidents in North America a year now. Probably somebody here can tell me. Anybody got a guess what it is? I have no idea, actually. But it's got to be thousands. Uh, if somebody knows, you can tell me. Somebody can go on the internet and find out. But would they have said yes in a town hall meeting or a community meeting a hundred years ago if they had thought about the impact on human life? I suspect a lot of people say, I'm not sure we want a technique that will kill thousands of people a year. But can you imagine any of us backing down on it now? In other words, technology changes the way we think about one another and the way we think about life. And you can't deny that. Now, have a few minutes and... Uh, Talk to one another about what techniques you see coming along and which ones you think are going to be important. I, in particular, want to learn something this week and uh, I should be very interested to see what techniques you think are going to be technologized into the larger system and used against us. Any particular comments that anyone wants to make first out of those discussions? Briefer they were. You can go walking and talk about them this afternoon, longer if you wish, but... Anything that you see on the horizon that has more implications than we're probably thinking about at the moment? All that talk has nothing. <laughs> John, you, you've read a uh, quote before. I'm sorry, I don't know who it is about um, the, kind of this, the kind of position. Oh, yeah, kind of yeah, Sydenham. Yeah, yeah. yes. Um, in our discussion, we talked about... Uh, <coughs> how residents are no longer longer examining patients for acute appendicitis or ordering CT scans and so forth. And, and I, I think even our patients' expectations for the kind of physician they want is changing. Yes. I think they don't expect uh, physical contact, history-taking, a relationship, no. examination. It's a process now, isn't it? It's a technique process. Uh, we're doing that in the medical schools. We see it all the while. We don't expect them to make a diagnosis in many cases. We expect them to set the process going in the right direction, uh, ask for the right tests, and it will generate the answer. So we are allowing ourselves to become more and more uh, replaceable cogs in the machine. Yes, Process as opposed to... I don't know what the word is for what we used to do before. Um, and Ed has disappeared at this point. He might be able to give me the word, you know, but... Uh, it's certainly process that we uh, evaluate students on now. Uh, yes? I have a patient Friday, who, uh, Thursday, excuse me, came in and asked if, uh, if she could fly to California from Indiana to have a total body MRI because members of the family, they had missed the diagnosis and the relative died of heart disease, a heart attack apparently. It took me about 15 minutes to explain how a total body MRI would not have made And they expect that nothing will be missed, and they'll want to sue if it is. Yeah. Yeah. There's a contrast, John, in developing countries, as you well know, um, unless you've actually touched the patient up to a cervical on the chest, you have an examiner. That's right, yes. yes. Uh, whereas, you know, we're moving in the opposite direction. Yeah. Another yeah. thing, I'm sorry. 
Sorry. Another thing that concerns me too is that technology or process is replacing thinking and oh, yeah. rationality. So process instead of thought, perhaps. That, 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 that's, <laughs> the, hmm. that, that's an interesting... And, and even the educational system is oriented around the, the, you know, continually asking regurgitant questions yes. rather than thought questions. Oh, yeah. The continual assessment is regurgitant, not thinking. Yes, and it's killed the education system. Uh, I can say to uh, students now, uh, develop a sort of airy-fairy description <coughs> of uh, their experience of the university as a place where it's been one of joyful uh, building of a coherent intellectual model that will serve them for the rest of their lives. But this time, those in third year are already laughing. And uh, I can go on like that for a minute or two and they'll all be in fits of laughter because it bears no relationship to what's going on in the university. It's basically become a place of... What, what was joyful uh, discovery has become anxious, continuous evaluation. And that's technique again. You see that, 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 that the people who we have allowed to govern our education system are technologists of education. And they say, you can't tell what somebody's like. You can only observe what they do. So you get uh, knowledge, skills and attitudes, whereas what you and I are interested in is character. And some of the best physicians I've known, who I would trust absolutely, would fail abysmally on all our attitudes bit. And some of the people who scored 100% in attitudes are charlatans of the first order, and you wouldn't want them near anybody of your ilk that you love or care about. And of course, you, you can... You can say to any medical class anywhere, and it's fun to do it. Uh, I do it all the while. It's one of my opening gambits, because you have to get their attention, because they're bored by inclination. Uh, and uh, I, I say, uh, if I said to you that there are people in your class, and you can say this within six weeks of starting medical school, about whom you've decided you will not trust the care of a dog of yours to them, what would you say? And all round the room, within six weeks of starting medicine, there's rueful smiles. And I can go on and say, if we took a vote about who they are, would there be a consensus? And the answer is yes. <laughs> so within six weeks, the class knows that 10 or 20% of the class would be better off outside of medicine. And it's the techniques of evaluation that have allowed them in. Oh, sorry, it's coming up on the thing. Nice, I'm sorry. You're not allowed to have any individual variations with modern technology controlling what I'm allowed to do. <laughs> One other thing is the, the whole aspect of money that uh, even, even in the drug companies and other businesses that, that, uh, that grasp the technology then promote it to ourselves, whether it's real or not, and promote us as, a, as the standard of care. Yeah. They don't take you out to lunch and all these other things because it doesn't work. They do it because it does work. Yes. But I gather it's stopping. There's been some agreement in the States on that one. Is that right? Yes. 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 They'll find other ways to, to manipulate. But it's again, it's applied psychology and everything else. There's a wonderful line in uh, Wendell Berry somewhere <laughs> in the Mad Farmer Liberation Front where he says... Uh, Basically, put your mind in a drawer. Don't call us. We'll call you when we want you to buy something. Uh, that's roughly where it's at now. Shop till you drop. Yeah.
I think the saddest place on earth is an American mall on a Saturday afternoon. I was at a conference in, where's the Mall of America, Minneapolis or somewhere like that. And it was just across the way from the, the conference centre, so I walked across it. I thought it was the most depressing experience I'd ever had in my life. Uh, to see people walking from store to store to store to buy things they did not need. Uh, horrendous, horrendous. And no one talking in an animated, you know, a joyful sense, because they're all focused on things. It was horrendous. Well, that's set you uh, going with some thoughts. You, uh, Christine, you had a comment, sorry. I just Yeah. That's right. The ones that are cold and, and just very methodical, not the ones that are willing to make the, the connection yes. with yes. Regardless of the error. Yes. Most suits are due to failure of communication, yes. Mm-hmm. And that's and something for... Well, patients actually do want. They do want the latest technology, but on the flip side, they still do want yep. Yes. That's one of the reasons why if your church has 300 members, it should employ a nurse. Because the function of that nurse is to go with sick patients for their interactions with the medical system. Because the time pressures are so great that even when you are a caring person, you can come over as not caring because of the time pressures. So the physician can communicate with the nurse more effectively than, say, particularly the elderly are slowing down a bit. And then he or she makes the bridge. And the elderly will actually change their wills in favour of the church to keep that program going. Parish nursing. Uh, uh, you can see what's going to happen we're going to reinvent what we destroyed and this is one of the ways it's it's going to uh, uh, develop one other aspect of technology is that the mere presence of an option um, allows people to make perhaps immoral decisions they would would not have been willing to do otherwise for instance we are deluged with requests for the morning after pill and seem to be portrayed as uh, some sort of unpleasant Puritan if we think it's wrong. That's right, yes. I was surprised that none of you brought up the pill, which I think is the classic example of technique taking over in human society in a way that's been horrendous. Those of you who have been in medicine a few years, when I started in medicine, uh, you could get through medical school with knowledge of three sexually transmitted diseases. Last count, it was over 35. I don't know what it's actually up to now, but there's probably an ID person here who can give me the number. But that's a me- and that's due to contraception. That's what caused it. It produced a contraceptive mentality, and the net result has been the explosion of sexually transmitted disease and diminished fertility of women around the world because of it. We don't have a population problem. We're going to have an underpopulation problem, especially in the Western world. I saw that Britain has dropped below 1.5 for the first, uh, just recently. You know, it's, it's plunging. It's Japan is in absolutely free fall population-wise, and being so incredibly xenophobic, uh, they can't survive. And the Japanese have never had significant immigration because you've got to be Japanese. But they're in free fall. Again, techniques. Abortion being, of course, the one in Japan where I think seven abortions for every live birth has been going on for some time. Because they didn't allow the pill for a while. Okay, so the ancient world didn't think in those ways. It thought in terms of locally related people 
to develop techniques without... Well, let me ask you the question again. What's the essential difference between technique and science, then? Yes. It comes down to the why questions. You know, you're not supposed to how, but why. Yes, it comes down to that question of understanding on a larger framework. In the modern sense, it's a paradigm-driven way of understanding. Although, I see most of you have been reading of Lindbergh, Lindbergh nicely points out there is no good definition of science. None of them work. The best one is science is what scientists do. <laughs> which, is <laughs> uh, which is true, but not very helpful. Uh, because then you're down to the problem of defining the scientist. Um, but... Uh, and the other one is doing your damnedest with no holes barred. Uh, and, of course, that's the way it works. You throw away some experiments and keep others in the early stages. As you, uh, and it's, it's intuitively driven. Uh, when I started my PhD, I wanted to do something, and at 18 months, I didn't have a single result. I knew it, it had to be possible. And I got meningitis and was off for three months. Went back, and uh, 18 months later, I had 15 papers. You know, that's quite a production rate. But that's the way it goes. Uh, but it was intuitive in its... The, the idea that it could be done and the techniques simply wouldn't come together for about two years. And then they did. That's uh, the way it works. So, the presuppositions of science nevertheless are real. So animist societies, the very ancient, will never produce science. Do you see why? Because an animist society believes for its explanation of the existential problems of life in evil spirits. Now, the essence of evil spirits is that they are local and they make sense of life. Take Africa as an example. If you're standing in a rainforest and you say to an animist, well, this just happened by chance, do you think they'll believe you? Absolutely not in common sense, which has largely evaporated on this continent, says, this is made. This, this has all the, the evidence of artistry. But the life of a, an African in Central Africa, who perhaps half his children may not live to maturity, uh, crops fail at random, has precious little control over the environment. How much evidence is there for a God of love in their world? Not that much. It takes considerable faith to believe in a God of love. But evil spirits, they make perfect sense of the existential problems of life. They explain arbitrary death, arbitrary suffering, arbitrary injustice. Uh, it's a very good explanatory model for getting on with life. You either shake your fist or try to placate the evil spirits. And somewhere way out there, there may be a distant God. But if you believe in evil spirits, what fundamental concept that emerged strongly in the 15th and 16th, well, actually, 14th, 15th and 16th centuries in northwestern Europe is unthinkable? Experimental method, That's right, inductive reasoning, as Bacon put it. Because... To, to believe, to trust inductive reasoning, you must believe that under the surface chaos of life there is predictable uh, behaviour. And we could believe that because we believed in a predictable God. It was essential to the whole process. But 
if evil spirits are at work, there's absolutely no reason why an experiment done in Ottawa should give the same answer as an experiment done in New York. Different evil spirits, different outcomes, at least on occasions. No way that you would ever do it. So there's no foundation in a pagan culture which is fatalistic for many educational activities. One of the ones that's clearly showing up in our neo-pagan society is the failure of sex education. Because the kids you want to get at are neo-pagans, fatalistic. You give them a condom and they blow it up and make a balloon. But in the process, they make the other kids feel as though there's something wrong with their hormones and they do stupid things and get caught. But sex ed doesn't work for the, precisely the people you're trying to, to get at because they're fatalistic. Uh, the country that we've been to that's most loaded with condoms is South Africa. I mean, they're everywhere. They even put their own flag on condoms. You know, I can't imagine anything this patriotic, but never mind. <laughs> uh, the net result, they have a huge explosion of sexually transmitted disease. Perhaps the biggest in the world at the moment. Because they, they are being dissociated from their tribal taboos, living in the city, which is not an African uh, invention, and behaving fatalistically. The combination is lethal. When we first went to South Africa, 88, I think it was, uh, I went to Soweto to teach, and they had had their first cases of AIDS uh, that year in Soweto. Now everybody triple gloves in Soweto. You go to Gala Ferry, and I think it's two out of three patients coming into emergency are HIV positive. You get one admission with HIV positivity, then you're dead. Uh, to get the Madungs of the Black Medical School, 20% of the first year students are HIV positive. You know, all that in, in just over 10 years. That's, that's horrendous. That's <coughs> animism dissociated from tribal taboos, but without the capacity to think in the way that we presume uh, things should work. So, you see, tremendously kind-hearted Americans and Europeans, well, they're more cynical and less kind-hearted, but you take American women to Africa and with nice warm churches and they see women pounding for eight hours a day. Next time they come back, they bring a mill. It functions for about a year at the most and then it's dead because oil is not an animistic thought. Since the machine, when it stops, stops because of an evil spirit, what has oil got to do with it? Technology cannot be transferred. I don't know when our universities will learn that. I mean, they have departments of development. Uh, the basic question is, show me development that has worked in the absence of a move from animism to theism of some sort. Or even pantheism at a certain level. So animism, the, the science is impossible. Uh, once gods who were more clearly defined uh, emerge, then you begin to, those societies that m came beyond animism, science becomes possible to a degree. Uh, it didn't happen, of course, uh, in the sense that we know it. Uh, the Western tradition, Hebrew thought would make science possible, but they didn't take much interest in science. Uh, they were interested in God's law, the moral law, and 
of course, that preparation over thousands of years has made them the world's greatest scientists now. The, the hard Nobel Prizes are really a question of whether European Jews are going to beat American Jews, you know, uh, to a very large extent. Here's this 50 million or less population of Jews in the world wiping the floor with all the bigger cultures. It's worth thinking about why that is the case. Uh, the Greek tradition, uh, which merges with the Hebrew one to give us who we are, also makes medicine uh, makes science sort of possible. But Aristotle would never do experiments, or he knew about them, but he didn't. He knew about inductive reasoning, but he didn't trust it. He wanted deductive reasoning. And the trouble is, our minds are not big enough to start from God and get to the particulars of how the Philadelphia gene works. You know, we can't do that long process of argumentation. We're just simply not capable of it. But we can start from the other end with inductive and get a little way. And so it wasn't until really uh, the Merton group in Oxford in the 13th and 14th centuries and Galileo started doing experiments and starting to think about what that meant, doing little things uh, that they could observe reasonably accurately and starting to work outwards. And the rest, of course, is an explosion. The problem, of course, that, that really is amazing. And uh, I'd love to, if any of you have got an answer to this question, please tell me. But one thing I really want to ask God is, why did you allow four men who believed in God to create a world in Western Europe where, which became tacitly atheistic? Because Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler and Newton were all theists. Newton was a slightly odd theist, but uh, Galileo and Copernicus were devout Catholics and Kepler was a very de devout uh, Lutheran. And Kepler even wrote prayers in his lab book. Now, those four men changed the understanding of the universe from the sort of uh, Middle Ages understanding to uh, a different model, which was essentially mechanical. And within... A hundred years or so of Newton's death, Laplace, a practicing Catholic, says to uh, Napoleon when asked where God fits in his science, he says, Sir, no need of that hypothesis. And he's right. Once inductive reasoning was shown to work and the experimental method worked, you don't need to believe the system that made those thoughts possible. They're empirically defensible. You don't need uh, the origins. And uh, that's what happened. And then we moved on in the 19th century to people like Huxley who were definitively determined to try and remove any connection between science and faith. It's a long and interesting process. Uh, it's got allowed. Now I think turning and coming back again because of the wonders of uh, quantum physics and molecular biology and the like. God's never in a hurry, but uh, I wish I knew quite what the, the benefit of this detour of the last 200 years has been. Because as McIntyre says, it, it really, since the Enlightenment, theologically and philosophically, it's been largely downhill. And uh, we need to go back to some ancient understandings. So, that kind of overview, let, let's think a little bit more about what, what were the key issues. Now, how many of you have actually read some Lindbergh? Oh, you're better than the average set of students. Uh, did you find Lindbergh interesting to read? Uh, pray for the man as you read. 
he grew up in a Christian background, lost his faith, uh, but not completely. He's still got all the, the trimmings, you know, he's a nice man, he cares for the students, all those kinds of things. His wife had a serious accident uh, and only survived because he bought a Volvo with airbags a few weeks before, which was written the side airbags. And that shock has brought him back to a Bible study. Uh, so he's on his way back. So pray for him. Because he's, I think he's done a very honest job in writing about the beginnings of Western science, trying to be fair about the role of faith. Uh, and yet it's a very academic book. So you can give it to people who are really interested, who uh, are materialists, and they'll read it, and he will move them a, a little bit, I think. So what I've covered in a very brief overview is some of the early stuff in, in, his, in his account, which is much better, uh, much more coherent. But uh, I want to send you away with some things to think about primarily. Well, what did you gain from the first little bit of Lindbergh? Because uh, I'm, of course, the only person at Augustine who teaches entirely outside my area in terms of being history. No, Frank Johnson does too. Um, I'm primarily a scientist and a physician, not a historian. So lots of this stuff I had never come across before. Was there lots of new stuff for you there? Uh, names that you'd never heard of and things you'd never realized. Uh, uh, let me just go through some of the things that, that, that I thought were interesting and then maybe you can add some of yours and we might have time to discuss some of them. Um, uh, I thought that the discussion that he raises about the nature of knowledge very useful. Uh, coherent knowledge uh, is something that we take for granted and we shouldn't, especially, for instance, in reading the scriptures. Uh, for the ancients, knowledge was on purpose, so to speak. So they could have different stories to explain different things. The fact that they didn't fit together didn't matter. Now, let's just try this. How many of you would be appalled if I said I thought that there are two creation stories in Genesis? Go and be honest. Oh, that's a nice answer, yes. <laughs> well, you're not appalled. You're physicians. You've given up being appalled years ago. <laughs> but but um, maybe you need to get it back again. Uh, it seems to me there are two stories. That, it, that in Genesis 1, it's male and female created out of the dust of the earth. If you only had Genesis 1, you, you would think that male and female were created in the same way. Uh, but then you come to Genesis 2, and the female is created from Adam's rib. Now, it seems to me that that's classic, and Lindbergh does a good job, I think, of this, of saying, yes, you have stories for, on purpose. And Genesis 1 is to tell you that in the beginning there was God and God made it all and man is different. And in Genesis 2, but we're screwed up and here's how it happened. Uh, in other words, stories told to illustrate fundamental realities in ways that are accessible to the human mind. Now, of course, many of the students we get coming to Augustine come from very uh, narrowly educated backgrounds. And we struggle with how we're going to deal with this sort of thing, uh, especially Edith, who will be teaching you tomorrow. And uh, has to begin to undermine some of their thinking in order to pre prepare them for the university. What do you think is the net result after five years? Should she be doing more or less of that? 
The answer probably a bit more, because they go off to the university and we haven't prepared them enough for how much undermining is going to go on. It's much better for them to see the alternative <coughs> understandings from people who love them and believe as they do, while being perhaps, we would say, more sophisticated and the fundamentalists would say less sound or more liberal. You, you, you choose your own words, whichever your perspective is. But you know, We had one student who, who came from such a background and struggled with Edith and then went off to do theology and, of course, you, you, there aren't any good theology schools. It's like there aren't good universities, really. They, you have to find your professors. And came up against a sophisticated guy who really deconstructed him in a big way. And she's been in correspondence ever since, uh, wondering, trying to help him through this process. Uh, things you've got to think about with your kids, because most of you are at that stage. How, how do you prepare them? Uh, and I think Lindbergh, talking about our understanding of knowledge and how it developed, helps. And of course we're moving back to incoherence. The, the kids I teach now are not even bothered by uh, logical incoherence. When Todd's generation was about the last one to go through where you could make it apparent that they'd made an illogical statement and they would respond by turning up at my Agnostics Anonymous group on Wednesday. Uh, a year or two later, they would say, especially the women, I don't accept your phallocentric logic. Just think about that for a concept. <laughs> you know. uh, but it's out there. Uh, logic is a male tool for dominance as far as some feminists are concerned. I don't, I don't think logic is even a discovery, uh, an invention. I think it's a discovery. It's the nature of the world. But that is not the dominant position. And as that deconstructs, we will deconstruct with it, in my view. And I think Lindbergh does a good job on that. Uh, he helps you to think about the way knowledge develops and what it's for, and how techniques moved on, and the, the, the geographical settings of the world being so important, the Nile Valley and its flooding, obviously raised considerable problems in an agricultural society, where every year the whole thing went <coughs> underwater, and then when it re-emerged from the water, which bit of land belonged to whom? Well, in Rwanda to this day, uh, the bits of land are all eagle-dee-piggledee and people will go out and change markers overnight. You know, the, the, the thing about remove not an ancient landmark in Proverbs is very real. And of course, in the Nile Valley, with a huge flood every year, it was a big deal when the flood had gone down. The river wasn't in quite the same position anyway. So that's where they had to develop techniques to solve that problem of some kind of surveying. And Thales was alleged to have gone. Is it Thales or Thales? I'm never sure. Thales probably, isn't it? Thales. Thales, yeah. yeah. At least we have corrections for our classical pronunciation today. He was alleged to have gone and looked at the Egyptian survey methods and came back to Greece. And the Greek mind started to work on that and develop abstract paradigms for uh, thinking about that process. And he's probably the first name that we have some shadowy understanding of who looks something that we might see the beginnings of a scientist in. Uh, he apparently is alleged to have predicted an eclipse and that of course would make you very famous, uh, uh, especially if you claim to have a theoretical basis for doing it. Whether he did or not, as far as I know, we can't tell. The other thing that I think I hadn't really appreciated enough, I knew it but I hadn't thought about it, is how brief 
in terms of history is the development of any coherent thought. Now, 3,000 years before Christ really writing began. It's an incredibly short time, isn't it? Uh, the decimal point not occurring in Babylon till you know, some 1,500 years before Christ. Yeah. Things like the zero, we don't know who it was who invented it, perhaps one of the most important inventions of all time. Uh, and what I really appreciate about Lindbergh, I think, is his capacity to, to give one some sense of that and uh, some sense of uh, the key questions uh, that were out there. Uh, and we're, we often miss out on, on thinking about the key questions. Let's just uh, see how much of your Lindbergh went in. What were the key questions for the ancients that might eventually come to science. Let's just see which, what your list looks like and compare it to mine. You start with cosmology. Do you like looking at the stars? Yeah? You have to talk to Frank Johnson if you've seen him this week. You don't have any more than we have. <laughs> yeah, you have to be pretty pure to live in Kansas, don't you? Yeah. Or naive, I'm not sure which. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cosmology certainly one, yes. What's the nature of the universe? Others? Ah, you read like physicians. Eh? How do you explain things? Do you use a mathematical model? Yeah, a nature knowledge, epistemology, yeah. That's any others? Well, the ontology, I mean, the whole ontology, what is, what is real? Yeah. The nature of reality is, can you trust your senses or not? Is, is reality in sense perception or in abstract thought? This is very important. I mean, these, these are all being thought about uh, all these centuries ago. First causes. Yeah, in the beginning what? Yes, it's there again. Uh, did it surprise you to discover that atomism was uh, discussed way back then? Democritus and the like. You know. There's nothing new under the sun, said Solomon, and he's, he's, he's dead right. Did you get to the bit about human vivisection, or did you not get to that yet? Yeah, that's a bit later. We're, we're not supposed to get there, but we can. Yeah. You know. You know, probably yeah, many of you are only going to come once, so if we digress, it doesn't matter that much. Yeah. What else? Well, does everything change or is everything the same? The, the nature of change, what's going on? Uh, the Heraclitus and uh, uh, Zeno in Parmenides in, in conflict, you know, the famous paradox of Zeno that in running around a, a, uh, a stadium, you could obviously divide the distance in half and then in a quarter, and then in an eighth. So there was a sense in which uh, it was impossible to run all the way around, since you had to do half first and then a quarter. Of course, it seems nonsense to us, but these discussions that were going on in the Greeks uh, around this time, nevertheless, had important consequences for us. And how we are to uh, understand our world. What about the nature of mind? Is Plato right? Uh, that that the reality is in 
the eternal forms or uh, is Aristotle right uh, with his uh, emphasis on observation and working from there especially in his biology uh, any of you digress at all into reading any more of Aristotle's biology and that sort of thing amazing man uh, he described things with only naked eye which were not confirmed confirmed until the 19th century uh, Obviously, he talked to lots of people, but uh, he was a marvellous observer. Uh, so the mind and the forms uh, versus rational thought. Uh, still, we have that uh, balance going on. And how do you account for decay? Uh, how do you explain motion? Uh, those are others that uh, were all being discussed in this incredible period. So, for the, the pre-Socratic people, uh, the world was understood as uh, the product of powers of love and generation personified in the gods. And that the world itself was a living organism, something which is coming back again in uh, some of the eco-feminists with uh, the, their... What's the word they use for... Gaia. Gaia, that's right, yes having one of those, uh, what they call them, senior moments when the word disappears. It's the worst part of growing old. I used to always be able to remember a, the title of a book, the author and the publisher. Now I can only get two out of three. It's very upsetting. Uh, at what point do you retire when you only get one out of three? I don't know. <laughs> and it comes back a little later, of course, you know, when it's totally irrelevant. Of course, something absolutely useless like What's the only animal apart from man that gets appendicitis? I will never forget. It's the wombat, in case you're interested. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. It's just a lovely, trivial, pursued type piece of nonsense knowledge, or pseudo-knowledge, probably. But their ideas of knowledge, of course, were all rooted in locality. It was personal. And the building of abstract concepts uh, was what began to happen fundamental to us now. Uh, we are, as somebody famous said, dwarfs standing on the shoulders of giants. We're certainly not brighter than Aristotle and all the rest, but because we stand on that history, uh, uh, we have uh, made some progress, which is quite astonishing. Uh, we've lost our way, I think, in, in terms of other things. Here's Lindbergh's uh, seven, or my modification of Lindbergh's seven ideas about how science uh, developed, um, none of which is satisfactory. His first one was, was patterns of behavior leading to the control of nature. It's a very technological approach. Uh, and you can see that that patterns of behavior is very much the way we do a lot of it now. Which bit of a scientific paper must you be able to read to call yourself a genuine critic? Methods. How many physicians can read the methods section of a paper with understanding? Very few. I, I would guess that I'm capable of reading the methods section with real understanding of something like 0.501% of the world literature. In other words, there's one method I do understand. I invented it. Uh, 
but there are other people who have since, since worked with it in ways beyond what I was capable of. But in that area, I could detect early on that there were people writing using that method who were fudging it because it wouldn't behave in that kind of way. Now, over the years, you see that they don't actually contribute to science. So within a r real scientist talking to one another, know who's honest and who isn't, because they can look at the standard errors and standard deviations and say, that method won't do that. He's fudging the data. You can't prove it. And it'll get published. But in the long run, it'll probably turn out not to be important. That's another problem with evidence-based medicine, you see. That, that when you're reading those papers, if you cannot read the methods, you're not actually capable of doing anything different than relying on authority in the most Catholic manner you can imagine without the honesty of the Catholics of saying this is a question of authority. And it, 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 essentially we are appointing popes of the medieval variety to adjudicate in the offices of the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, and we need to, we need to be recognize that character is going to matter again in this area. Uh, and I say to young people setting off in a career in science for your uh, PhD, it's important that you work with somebody whose character you trust uh, can guide you appropriately. It's very, very important. So, but the patterns of behaviour, see, is what what actually dominates scientists. Scientists are not logical, many of them. There are errors of logic in many, many scientific papers. Scientists are methodological. If you use the methods appropriately, you get results that even if you don't understand, somebody else might. Uh, and the problem is when the methods are abused and you can no longer tell one from the other. Now, that's all a new thing, you see. In the 19th century, nobody did science for money. They did it because they were interested in it. Show me was the basic rule of the Royal Society in London in the, what was it, 17th century when it started. And nobody was doing it for money. But once money crept in, oh man, now it's real trouble. Because if you're an assistant professor without tenure and your research is not going well, you face a very serious dilemma. You can realize that very shortly you will be without tenure and without grants and you will have wasted 10 years of your life. Or you can fabricate a paper. And if it's good enough to be published but not important enough to be repeated, you get tenure. Even if it is more important than you realize and it gets repeated, it won't be believed that you fabricated it until a couple of people and then somebody will start probing. So you probably get 10 years of income out of your 10 years investment uh, before you get thrown out for disreputable behavior. And anyway, you will have been planning to work in the commodities market where it's not thought to be disreputable. Uh, you know, that's, that's, that's the world we're in. And of course, we don't know who these folk are. It has changed my examination techniques in this university completely because I realized I couldn't catch the cheats about eight or nine years ago. So I changed my evaluation. In my own course, I couldn't do it in medical school, but I had my own course in, in biochemistry. Uh, totally open book, access to all information. Because that's, I couldn't catch the cheats, I could only make their skills of no value. Uh, 
and that meant that I had to set about examining their capacity to read, analyze, think, uh, organize the next steps. And the joy of that, in the next eight years or so, I selected two students out of my course, one of whom crept into PH, into the postgraduate program only because of my mark. I gave her an A+. Plus. She'd never seen anything above a, a B as a student all the way through. But she desperately wanted to do uh, science, but she didn't have a good short-term memory. She's funded at something like a quarter of a million dollars a year now. I was right, and the university was wrong. And the next one was a, a French-Canadian uh, guy from uh, the backwoods of Quebec who uh, didn't speak very well, but again, he had a good mind. He could read, he could write, and he could organize. And he has published more papers as a graduate student than any other graduate student we've ever had. So commitment to these things is important. Second one of... Uh, uh, Lindbergh's definitions is theoretical knowledge leading to technology. That's, uh, that's becoming even more the case than it used to be. Uh, certainly, if you produce a technique that can be used technologically, you've got to control over the papers for a little while. Not as long as it used to be. The subtle thing is to publish your new technique in a way that's good enough to be published but still makes it hard for other people to repeat. And that gives you a year or two longer before they get the little little bits of key information that you neglected to publish on the first occasion. Uh, somewhat cynical but <coughs> realistic in this world. Uh, but theoretical knowledge that leads to technology, absolutely amazing. And of course... We don't think in those terms now. If I say to the students in a lecture, what I'm about to tell you will not be on the exam, but is absolutely fascinating, what will they do? Medical students more than science students. Uh, actually, someone will just put their pen down immediately and tune out for the next five minutes. Uh, the moment you say it's not on the exam, they're not interested. Uh, and if you're doing something that sounds a little obscure, what will they say? Is this relevant? That's the word. Now, do your children use the word relevant? Scold them if they do. I mean, uh, it is a non-Christian word. Uh, well, not totally, but you know what I mean. Uh, my favourite example of making this clear is, uh, some of you probably heard me use this example, it's a lovely apocryphal story, it may even be true for all I know but it's said that Niels Bohr came into a, um, a Manchester common room in the 1920s during the development of the quantum physics revolution and uh, uh, he was looking very pleased with himself and an English uh, a prof in the English department said Niels you look as though you've had a good day and he said I had a marvellous day he said well what have you done? Well, he was a theoretical physicist. He said, I've convinced myself that the atom can be split. And what, pray, is the relevance of that, said the <coughs> prof from the English department. And Niels Bohr, being a very bright man, didn't answer immediately. He thought for a minute or two, and then he said, none whatsoever, as far as I can see. <laughs> Fortunately. I mean, how wrong can you get? Uh, that's theoretical knowledge leading to technology and the person who acquired the knowledge in the first place had no idea what was going to come from it. It was Einstein who saw what could be done and went to 
Roosevelt and said, this looks to me important and here's the reasons. Uh, and the rest, as we say, is history. Uh, number three, the production of law-like statements about the physical world. Again, it's helpful, but it's not enough. Number five, epistemological definitions centering on defining proof and evidence. Again, this is a mechanistic understanding of science uh, with defined ideas of what a proof is and what evidence is. But it isn't what actually happens, which is interesting. Uh, Polanyi's wonderful concept of tacit knowledge makes much more sense to most leading-edge scientists. They, when you explain what he had to say, they say, yeah, he's right. Now, the philosophers hate him. I don't understand why. I, I guess because he's saying something that all the people doing it like and they don't like because it, it, doesn't, it doesn't allow science to be captured in the area of philosophy. Um, medicine, of course, has a lot of tacit knowledge, so it's a concept you need to think about and probably need to teach to your children. Christianity has it too. Conversion is tacit knowledge, in my view. Um, there's a nice uh, Mars Hill tape on Polanyi. If you want to think about this more deeply, you could get that. But um, the example I normally use is from Polanyi. He, he, he was Hungarian, uh, <coughs> Jewish, never practiced Judaism, was briefly a Catholic in the Catholic Church, but then left, and nobody knows for certain what he believed. And I think he was very careful because he knew that if he was defined as a Christian, people wouldn't listen. Um, he, he uh, ran away from Hungary when he realized what the Bolsheviks were up to and went to Germany in the 1930s, which was bad news with Jewish genes. But he got out in time and ended up in Manchester, which he enjoyed greatly. He then went to Oxford, which wasn't anywhere near as good, he said. Um, what he liked about Manchester is all around Manchester, little back street shops where craftsmen work. And he was interested in that, and he would go and talk to them. And he recognized that the tacit knowledge through talking to these craftsmen and asking them about what they were doing and realizing they knew exactly what they were doing but they couldn't describe it. Now the best example is making violins. Have you ever noticed there's no 101 course on how to make a, a violin? There could be perhaps a 101 but it wouldn't make any decent violins. Because if the modern university's understanding of knowledge was true the, the, the post-enlightenment concept, then you could take a Stradivarius to pieces, make, with computer-assisted design, exact replicas of all the pieces, and then assemble two Stradivarii. But in actual fact, you would have destroyed one. Uh, in other words, there is knowledge that Stradivarius had which cannot be contained within modern ideas of knowledge. But if you, want to make, if you want to make good violins today, you can still do it, but you have to go and find somebody who's making a good modern violin, and there are people making violins today who are making very good ones. Not quite of the Stradivarian uh, quality, as far as the musicians are concerned, but very good. Like I know that, uh, for instance, uh, James Galway has his flute made in a little shed at the bottom of the garden in South London by a guy who he likes the way he makes his flute. But if you go to such a modern violin maker, he will say, well, you want to be a violin maker? Show me some of your work. And in most cases, he'll say, don't waste your time. You're never going to be a violin maker. 
go home and do something else. You're not up to it. Uh, perhaps one in a hundred times they say, well, perhaps you can come and watch and make the coffee and sweep the floor and we'll see. And so you watch him at work and he might give you little exercises to do. And then eventually comes the great day when he gives you a great, a valuable piece of timber to cut out. When you cut it out, he says, give it to me. And he feels it. He says, don't you feel, you've got to take a bit more off here. You've got to take a bit more off here. Or oh, you've taken too much off here, you've ruined this. You know. What's he doing? He can a violin to sing has got to fit together without tensions. The wood, is, all the pieces have got to fit together if it's going to sing. And he can feel that. Is it real knowledge? Oh yeah. That's why he's a good violin maker. That's tacit knowledge. Knowledge is, is real, but beyond description. We rationalise, of course. Now, I could pick my wife out of a group of 100,000 women. I would have more difficulty in telling you how to do that, right? And you could all do that with your spouses. But describing how you do it is a different matter. If I asked in your town who's the best internist, who's the best surgeon, there would be agreement very quickly, would there not? If I asked everybody, the same names would come up in both categories. And then I ask you why, and you start rationalising. You knew first, and then you say, well, he has a better diagnostic record. But that's not really, that's not how you knew. You don't know how you knew. You've worked with the guy for time. You're just impressed with the way he does medicine. That's tacit knowledge. Conversion is the same. And of course, given our obsession with turning everything into reproducible techniques, you see how this is working in theology? We have crusades defined to achieve so many conversions, so to speak. The worst televangelists do it in the most disreputable fashion. But actually, your conversion is tacit knowledge. At one point you were heading in this direction and then later you found yourself heading in this direction. In between, certain things happened. But I guarantee one thing it was not, and that's the classic teenage propositional conversion. Do you believe this, 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 sign here, you're a Christian? That simply is not a description of the truth, is it? That's not what made you a Christian. Uh, it, it's some interaction. That may be an event in the process that was used to solidify but if it did solidify, it was not because of that propositional gospel. It was because, in some sense, as I said last night, God came to you and made the story come to life in ways that you can no longer deny. Uh, certain things, over time, become solid in your Christian faith. I hope you've noticed that. The, the devil no longer tempts you on some issues, does he? You know, the, the, he's always attacking, but he knows that eventually certain ground is so solidified, it, it's not worth it anymore. As Lewis says, you can laugh at him. And, and you should, because he will do it. Uh, and, of course, uh, you've got to learn that this is, this is a joke and carry on. For me, one that happens is, when, when, particularly if you're talking to a large audience and you realise you have their attention, he will come and just, you know, pride is what he wants look how well you're doing and you just have to laugh and say go away it's nothing to do with you uh, and it's not me either I'm merely the tool for this process and what a pleasure it is uh, it's tacit knowledge uh, yes would the devil itself be tacit knowledge? well we can come to know, we know we know of him in various ways some people more than others I prefer Lewis's approach that the less we know of him the better uh, we shouldn't be too interested. He has no power over us. 
I think currently we're moving back towards neo-paganism, so there's more obsession in the churches, the devil made me do it type nonsense. Our tacit knowledge should be of God's love and his work in us, and that's more than an antidote for him. Uh, he does get people into trouble. Charles Williams had problems with his fascination with it. Lewis's friend. Uh, if you want to read about that, Williams is probably one of the guys to read. Wonderful. Wonderful writer too. A unique... He's the only Christian novelist I know whose novels you can read a month later because <laughs> there's so many illusions per page. Uh, I'm not capable of picking them all up. You have to be a real scholar to do that. But that's the way that science actually works, I think. It's a, there's knowledge first and working it out afterwards. Um, Lindbergh also has a whole variety of methodological definitions of science, none of which I think work. Um, then he puts down a particular belief system. And there are some who say this, uh, and it's good to see how the science is to considerable degree self-correcting, and even amongst the unbelievers there are honest folk who uh, we should always keep pushing on. What is, what is the truth about this? In science, you can do that. Listen to this. This is, uh, from, of all places, the, the obituary on Carl Sagan in the New York uh, Review of Books, written by a man called Richard Luontin. The only reason I wrote it down is I knew Richard Luontin was a Marxist and an evolutionary biologist from Harvard. But he's also honest. This is what he wrote about scientists, materialists. We take the side of science in, in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create a set of concepts that produce material explanations no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. To appeal to an omnipotent deity is to allow that at any moment the regularities of nature may be ruptured, that miracles may happen. Uh, that's, I think, an honest description that uh, it is not true that science requires you to be a materialist, but that is the way that the kids are taught in school. And uh, there you have somebody <coughs> writing the opposite and taking Sagan to pieces. Sagan was a great publicist and a sophomoric philosopher. Uh, and Luontin points that out. Uh, belief systems do matter and they will produce different sorts of science and Hinduism produces very little science it's not that Indians are incapable of science you translate them from India to Harvard or Oxford or Cambridge and suddenly they blossom but the fatalistic culture of India does not produce science on the scale that it could with one-sixth of the world's population neither does Islam also uh, uh, somewhat fatalistic. Um, it's been basically downhill since the 11th and 12th centuries for Islam. And again, Lindbergh does a good section on that. Sorry, you had a question? Uh, 
Well, I'm just wondering, because Islam obviously played a huge part in the development of science, and then all of a sudden it's kind of like, poof. It, it, it was the guardian of, it took Greek thought, uh, I mean the route all the way around, it went all the way around the Atlantic, uh, around the Mediterranean along the, and came into Spain and then back, but it, it had to come, Aristotle had to get to Aquinas in my view, and then you had to get the things that happened with the Reformation, uh, particularly the elevation of wor- using your hands to an act of worship. For the whole thing to happen, so those, to, to me, those two things are key: the, the trust in inductive reasoning because of theology and the elevation of using your hands to an act of worship. So that in the early scientific societies that developed in the 17th century, Puritans were vastly overrepresented. That's not a surprise. Is it? They they brought honesty and trades with good minds. So, people like lens grinders made a huge impact on science. Newton himself was superb with his hands. You know, when he was a, a teenager, he made a functional uh, watermill. Uh, he ground his own lenses. You know, th- this man could do everything. I mean, it's, it's astonishing. Again, if you've got kids who are interested in this, uh, there's a very readable book. It's on the shelf there. Uh, from IVP called uh, uh, oh, from the title, the Galileo, Galileo Connection, I think it's called. But it's Hummel. It's on the it's on the shelf there anyway, on the science shelf back there. I can see the book from here. It's about six in from the the, the right hand end at about your shoulder level. Third, fourth shelf down. Hummel. I think it's the Galileo connection. You'll find it anyway. Um, but but it's readable, and you get the story of Galileo, uh, uh, Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo, and Newton in, in a way that kids can read. That's honest about faith can be a great help for them in school, and I mean for you guys to read. It's a sort of book you can read on holiday very quickly. Um, so belief systems matter. Uh, and finally definition by example from activities pursued rigorously or precisely they all fail Uh, the tacit world is not taken seriously enough and so we still lack a real definition of science now after the pre-Socratics the Socratic uh, folk um, started to consider uh, Plato, uh, for instance, had a remarkable uh, construction of the world as a set of geometric forms that fitted together. Kepler, for instance, was very fascinated by and tried initially to produce a model of the cosmos built on uh, uh, platonic forms before he moved on. Um, But but for him, what what happened in the mind uh, was uh, far more important than uh, what happens. That, that there is an ideal dog out of there, which all dogs are uh, images. To Aristotle, that was just ridiculous. Uh, so Aristotle, from the scientist's point of view, is the, is the guy who uh, really changed it all for us. So started it flying in a direction which eventually. Uh, Aristotelianism was lost in 
in science, uh, rightly so in many ways. It hung on in medicine much longer than in anywhere else. But uh, he had a physician father too, uh, born what 384 BC. Uh, father, his father was a king's physician. Uh, you can never be too careful in choosing your parents, can you? Uh, the problem is that we're not allowed to. You know, it is the the most important thing. Uh, so he had an exceptional education. He was taught by Plato from the age of 17 onwards. 20 years with Plato. And, uh, then when Plato died, he travelled in Asia Minor, and this is obviously where his biology took over. Uh, I wish I was an Aristotle scholar, because uh, the bits that I read are nowhere near sufficient, but absolutely fascinating. Uh, I just need somebody to pay me for a year or two to go and read Aristotle. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But it's not likely to happen. Uh, and again, it would be a bit like the Sermon on the Mount, because I gather that most of Aristotle's stuff is, is basically lecture notes, so you've got to fill in the blanks. Uh, he, he made good friends and was tutor to the future Alexander the Great and came back to Athens when the Macedonians took over and then started a systematic attack on pretty well all major philosophical problems. Uh, uh, Aristotle thought that objects were real and autonomous, that you could trust your senses, which we have uh, taken over since. Uh, obviously, the senses can deceive. Uh, he understood that. Uh, others had understood that before. But we are forced to rely on them in many, many ways. Uh, the problem is to get that balance right. You know. How do you know when the data is true? When is the error yours? It's a long while before anybody really took that seriously and uh, uh, the first person to really take that seriously was uh, the Czech guy you know, having another senior moment uh, the guy whose data Kepler used Tycho Brahe the guy with the brass nose that's something you never forget he had his nose cut off in a duel so he had a brass one um, that's a crazy character you'll never forget that will you I mean it's the sort of thing you just uh, once said never forgotten um, but he was the first guy, centuries later, to know what the precision of his instruments was. In other words, what his, he was only making naked eye measurements with the aid of various mechanical devices to, for, for positioning. But he was the first person to, to know, to realize that a measurement is not in itself true. All instruments are attempting to measure something and there is a variance about the truth of the matter. And so he made, he began in effect to, to do some statistics. Uh, and so he knew that his observations of Mars were out by, I think it was five seconds of arc. You'd have to look it up. I think it's in Lindbergh and Kepler. Knowing that that Tycho Brahe's data was that precise, knew that Mars could not be on a circular orbit. And because he knew how reliable Tycho Brahe's data was, he recalculated his data for five years until he stumbled on the ellipse. And then he wrote in his lab book, he gave thanks to God for an error of five seconds of arc. 
all that time from Aristotle's, yes, you can observe, you can trust your uh, observations, but uh, think about what they mean. And we're still thinking about that. And of course, quantum physics is making it even worse, isn't it? Uh, when we approach the limits of, of what we can know. But Aristotle really uh, started to work on that. Um, and these are the kinds of questions he wanted to ask. Is what is seen reducible to more fundamental realities? Oh, the fundamental reality, says my wife, is coffee. And that, that probably would be reasonable because then I can finish this off afterwards with some more fuel on board. And you can be thinking of some questions to start off the next session if you want. So take a break. Uh, you see how easily I'm stopped by coffee. Uh, so I've got 15 minutes because uh, that's all the tape that's left. No, it's also lunchtime for you. No, no. Yeah, yeah. Technology again, it does change the way you live. Yeah. Aristotle uh, systematized uh, what he called the four causes. Uh, it's one of the things that you probably do know. Formal cause, material cause, efficient cause, and final cause. Uh, underlying everything, there's matter. And that a form is imposed on that matter, an agency is required to do that, and there's a purpose for it. So, in distinction from what modern science is supposed to be, but isn't, it's a teleological system, a system done on purpose and for a purpose. Uh, and much medical thought, you see, is teleological, because we're ancient in so many... It's still there in our thought patterns. Scientists like to believe they have no interest in teleology, uh, but as somebody said, teleology... Teleology, teleology is a woman you cannot afford to be seen with, but you cannot do without her. Uh, and, uh, of course, it's always there in our thought. It's the way, it's the way we are constructed. Um, if you have trouble rem remembering uh, Aristotle's four causes, just think of someone making a marble statue. You know, the, it's a lump of marble, a shape is put onto it by an artisan for a particular purpose. Um, it's a scheme of general thought which was helpful, but as somebody, yeah, it's Mark, pointed out, he's reading of Aristotle, he's, he screwed it all up. Uh, that's basically a scientist looking at things. Uh, the, the philosophers wouldn't agree with you, in fact. You, you'll uh, probably find Graham Hunter at some point say that, having done his PhD on Kant, that uh, everything was downhill from Plato and Aristotle, you know, that's, that, that's where all the answers are. Um, the, the, he did get things wrong. The, the one that, that, uh, that we would strikingly disagree with is his view that the cosmos is eternal. We, of course, believe that it's created. And uh, I use him in, in my introductory lecture for the science course every year. I ask the students, what have you learnt in this uh, university about the beginnings of the cosmos? And of course, you just get a, uh, nothing or after a little while a muttered big bang, you know, and then I say, well, I don't know, in more general philosophical terms, nothing. So I say, would you be interested in some answers? Always ask questions when you're treading on thin ice. Uh, and they say yes, and I say, oh well, here are three options. Either the cosmos is eternal, as Aristotle believed, or it's created, as Jews and Christians and other great religions believe, or it's self-creating. 
Can you think of any model of the cosmos that isn't covered by those three? Of course they can't. There is another one, and that is that it doesn't exist. It's an illusion, but uh, not many scientists are interested in that one. It's a serious one. Philosophers try to convince me, but uh, I'm still to be really convinced. Um, but we don't have to bother with that. I say, well, let's find out which one you believe. And that's it. How many of you do not believe the second law of thermodynamics is true? Well, there's nobody in a fourth-year science class who doesn't believe the second law of thermodynamics is true. So I say, well, which of the models is dead? And they work out that if the, th the second law of thermodynamics is true, then our cosmos is in some sense finite. It had a beginning or will have an end. So that's one down, two to go. How many of you believe you're created? And in Ontario, it's about 10% who put up their hands like this so that I can see and the rest of the class can't. In the prairies, it gets up to 50. In the West Coast, you can't get an answer. Uh, uh, in the, uh, on your East Coast, uh, you're like Ontario, 10% uh, or lower. And then there's another bit that Americans forget, that Canada goes further east, and it improves again, doesn't it, Todd, as you get out that way? But they start believing in God again out there. <laughs> so I say, oh, you're only Christians, you don't matter. And they laugh, and then I wrap them over the knuckles for being politically incorrect. And I say, well, now I know what you do believe. Since you said you don't believe two of them, you must believe in a self-creating universe, which Fred Hoyle and Bertrand Russell believed in. But that was before the red shift was described by Hubble. And they knew why they believed it. They wanted to get away from God. But actually, it's perfectly rational to believe in God. And certainly, uh, since you're the ones who believe in a self-creating universe, just think about it for a moment. If you were to create yourself, you would have to be here before you are here that's a good reason to send you to a psychiatrist. It, it <laughs> certainly destroys logic. I need logic for this class. I suggest you leave. And I get rid of 10%. A much smaller class, less marking, and, and, and much better, much more fun. Because uh, the, the people who've just come for an A+, know that this isn't that kind of course where you can guarantee an A+, if you simply regurgitate enough facts. Um, but Aristotle, you see, was wrong for once. He, he did believe in the, the eternal uh, cosmos. Uh, he, he also made some very useful and worthwhile distinctions for us in science, you know, distinguishing between the form and the properties so that he recognized you couldn't collect a, a bunch of hot or a bunch of red or a bunch of blue. They, they were not susceptible to that kind of... Um, of manipulation. So he, he, he distinguished between what you could observe in a sense of being able to collect a bunch of things and uh, things that you could know about that couldn't be collected in that kind of way. So again, he was making real distinctions about knowledge of different sorts. Something that we're not as good at as he was. You know, people say to me, how can you be irrational as a Christian? And I say to them, it's you that's irrational. Uh, Look, uh, a physician, so physicians, this is an easy one. You say, you've seen lots of mad people, haven't you? What happens to somebody's life when they go mad? Answer, it falls apart. When somebody gets converted, does their life fall apart? No, in general, it actually falls together, so to speak. Conversion is not irrational, it's super-rational. It's not less than our rationality, it's greater than our rationality. Our rationality, as we understand it and practice it within medicine and science, is a limited rationality, it's not complete. 
to, to believe is, is to have something bigger, not something smaller. And it's not irrational. It may not fit in your model of rationality, but it's certainly not mad. And uh, they're quite um, upset by that, but sometimes they come back and say thank you. So it's, it's another bit of pre-evangelism. And I, I think one of the things I was trying to say last night, what David says, I have not kept my mouth shut when I should have spoken. Uh, you need to, there are various things you need to be listening for, and when you hear them, they get the response, zap, zap, thump, thump, you know, go away and think about that. Uh, and if we did a lot more of that, there'd be much more, uh, uh, the world would be much more appreciative of what Christianity is. Newhouse does it brilliantly, doesn't he? I mean, the, the, the public square is just slap over the face, left, right, and center all the way through. It's brilliantly done. And just plagiarize him, he'd be delighted. He won't even complain, I'm sure. So, Aristotle believed in an eternal world, a deity so distant that he had no knowledge or concern for the world. He introduced another idea to us in that he had a fairly rigid sense of determinism, the sense that, that, that things are written in laws, and we have a problem with that, you see. We disappear. Uh, you remember the... Uh, the great quotation of Lewis from it's not actually the, the version I'm going to read to you is not actually from the abolition of man and I've got to find out where this one is it must have been an essay that became the, the abolition of man I think it's it's actually better than what occurs in the, the thought is in the, uh, the abolition of man but not so concisely for the wise men of old he said the people that we've largely been talking at, the cardinal problem of human life was how to conform the soul to objective reality. In other words, God. They believed in objective moral truth. And the solution was wisdom, self-discipline and virtue. Things you don't hear about in the modern medical school at all. For the modern mind, the cardinal problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men and the solution is a technique, he should say technology, which is different. The pursuit of happiness in the modern sense is therefore self-indulgent. But man's conquest of nature must always be some man's conquest of other men using nature as the means. But these powerful people no longer think of God and God's laws as objective reality, so they are controlled not by God's supernatural ideals, but by the natural forces of their own heredity and environment. Thus, Man's conquest of nature turns out to be nature's conquest of man. The irony is wonderful and it's beautifully expressed. And the place where it's hurting us most at the moment, of course, is in our Supreme Courts. Canada even worse than the US. You have seven of, well, six and a half of your nine justices who, who are determinist. All of ours are. They think that they make the law, but if there is no God, on what basis do they make the law? Only on the basis of what they feel and what they have previously experienced. And so they read into the law whatever they want, the, the nostrums of the age. Or as uh, Peter Kreef puts it there, they have their, their nose up the zeitgeist of the age, or more precisely, the backside of the zeitgeist of the age. But that, that's, that's where we're at. Uh, and... When you see the long history of ideas, you begin to see how these things matter and the things that, that we need to, to hang on to. Lindbergh is worth work, reading through two or three times uh, uh, to follow his argument.
So eventually Aristotle came back uh, into the Western world and by the, the Arabs it went first all the way around the Mediterranean to come back in through Spain. One or two little bits survived the east-west divide <coughs> but not very much. Uh, but then 11th and 12th centuries it all began again and uh, we're now at the stage where people are coming back to think about Aristotle once more but not in terms of the science. Uh, he did, you're, you're quite right in that some of his ideas turned out to be very restrictive of science and the right way to approach science is not to be concerned with what is it for at a deep level but just to know what is uh, and let the rest be influenced by uh, the broader culture. Now the thing for you to do now is to go and recover from a wasted morning and uh, enjoy lunch with uh, company. I think you have enough uh, interesting people to talk to and uh, chatter away if there are anything that uh, interested you. We can begin this evening with some questions uh, briefly or perhaps I should do uh, the lecture first and then questions can go as long as you want after that. But I'll, I'll talk this evening about the ethics of the, the physicians in the 4th uh, uh, and 5th centuries BC because I think that provides us with a very useful tool for engaging our culture. Good. Uh, unless there's any questions of information you want now, you're probably exhausted. I mean, uh, three hours is more than you're supposed to go for. Yes? What, what are your sources of quote by Margaret Mead? It's... Uh, you're the second person to ask that. Um, Rita Marker gives a reference which I haven't written down. This little book was written for my own benefit and the result was that I didn't write all the bibliographical data down that I should have done. But Rita Marker from the Anti-Euthanasia League in the, the States has the reference in one of her papers. You got it? You got the reference? Oh, good. I trained him to get have a book and he's more obsessive-compulsive, you see, so he has to... <laughs> Except that he'd lost it once, and I never lost mine. It's Rita Marker, Etau, Euthanasia, Historical Overview. And this actual quote came from Maryland Journal of Contemporary Legal Issues. That's right. Thank you. Yes. Our marker, Kate Al, Euthanasia, Historical Overview. 